0: This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between including your story send them to ouramericanstories.com that's ouramericanstories.com there's on the navigation bar the words your story click that and just fill out the form we make it really easy for you. Talking about that up next is a story from our regular contributor and listener on WHO in Des Moines, Joy Neal Kidney. Joy is the keeper of her family's history and the author of Liara's Letters, the story of love and loss for an Iowa family during World War II. Today, Joy shares with us a short story on the importance of an ordinary tree in her own yard. Take it away, Joy.
1: There's a humble maple tree in the backyard that has worked its way into our hearts. You probably wouldn't call this most ordinary maple beautiful any season of the year. Other maple trees have handsome leaves and are colorful in autumn. This unremarkable tree has nondescript leaves in autumn that just turn a dull yellow, the bland color of cornflakes. Not long after we moved back to Iowa with a toddler, we discovered that this plain neighbor casts a fine, dense shadow. Soon our two-year-old was digging in a sandbox beside the trunk, screened from the sun and heat by a leafy green canopy. We found that as the sultry summer sun lowered in the afternoon sky, the maple's blessed shade sheltered our small patio and west windows. The branches of the maple were a little too high for even a bigger kid to climb, but my husband roped a tire swing to one stout limb. When our son gained some years and inches, his dad added a knotted climbing rope. During summer's thunderstorms, we marvel at the maple's flexibility and tenacity. The wind whips and churns, flinging writhing branches in a wild dance. We try to imagine the huge network of underground roots, anchor it during violent storms. remembering words like photosynthesis and xylem and phloem from biology. I ponder at our ordinary tree, piping up water and minerals from its roots, mixing them with carbon dioxide absorbed through its leaves from the air, making food for the tree and doting precious oxygen to us. We do nothing for this faithful servant except to carry away the winged seeds it sends whirligigging down in the spring And come autumn, my husband rakes up its crisp, curled, drab leaves. The tree's skeleton in winter is often defined by a skiff of snow. The light from a full moon glows through its branches, casting a bony shadow against the ground. The now towering tree provides a safe place for fox squirrels to winter, curled up in their penthouse nests, where babies are born in the spring. A few weeks later, the newly leafed maple is a haven for migratory birds. Several springs I've been serenaded by a rose-breasted grosbeak perched in the tree while planting morning glories. It is housed at Sheriff Nestlings, usually Robins. The uncelebrated tree was decimated several years ago during a March ice storm. Heaps of budded branches, large and small, crashed and tinkled, spilling ice on the frozen lawn. Remaining branches jutted awkwardly, looking as if a huge monster had twisted and dismembered the tree. My husband did some first aid on it and called a tree trimmer but the maple mainly needed to heal to exert its own resilience. In spite of our worrying, it has done just fine and has returned to its main job, being our chief shade tree. The sandbox is gone so are the climbing rope and tire swing. In fact, our son has a little girl of his own. But today, cloistered in the shade of the maple, I enjoy a mug of coffee and contemplate the blessings of one ordinary tree.
0: And great job, Monty, and a special thanks to Joy Neal Kidney. And I think we all have that tree in our lives. I mean, we had really, in my family, where I grew up, one big chestnut tree that was special to us. And the sound of those chestnuts dropping on the roof always got me going. And then collecting them up and ultimately being able to use them for good around, well, around Halloween and around Thanksgiving was even better. And in my own home now, a great white oak which we light up because it's so beautiful, and the dogwoods all around our house, which, my goodness, when they bloom, there's nothing quite like it. A beautiful story about an ordinary tree by a listener at WHO and a regular contributor now. Joy Neal Kidney's story about her ordinary tree here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and up next, another story from David Rubenstein. David is probably best well-known as the patriotic philanthropist who has spent tens of millions of dollars restoring the Washington Monument, the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, and so much more. But he's also able to do all this because of his work at the Carlisle Group, one of the most successful investment firms in the world. And today, Alex Cortez brings us stories with David from his book, How to Lead, wisdom from the world's greatest CEOs, founders, and game changers. Take it away, Alex.
2: Indra Nui is someone that I've heard of before, but not like this.
3: Well, Indra Nui is an interesting situation because she came to run one of the leading companies in the world, even though she was a woman who was an immigrant to the United States. In other words, she's running Pepsi Cola or PepsiCo, a classic American company, but she hadn't been born in the United States and she wasn't a man. And all the previous people running that company were men. So she came here to go to graduate school at Yale. And ultimately she stayed here to work at the consulting firm and then at Pepsi. Uh, And She had two interesting stories that I, I would think are worth mentioning. One of them is that after she became the president of Pepsi, she came home one day and she wanted to tell her mother, who was then living with her, I believe, and her mother didn't want to listen. She said, no, your job is not to talk about that. When you come home, you have to do other things. Go out and get some milk. We need milk. And she said, well, I want to tell you my news. I'm I had some big news at the office. She says, I don't care about that. Go out and get the milk. That's your job as the mother and as the wife is to get the milk. We don't have any milk. So she had to go get the milk, be obedient to her mother and came back and said, "And oh, by the way, I'm now the president of Pepsi.
2: To which her mom responded, when you walk in that door, just leave that crown in the garage, because you are the wife, the daughter, the daughter-in-law, and the mother of the kids, and that's all I want to talk about. Anything else, just leave it in the garage. Don't even try this with me anymore.
3: Secondly, when she was a CEO, she's since retired from that. But when she was a CEO, she would kind of bond with a lot of her senior employees by writing, in effect, letters or report cards to their parents saying, your daughter is doing a really good job in this area. And, you know, the the, the employees were staggered that their mother or father were getting letters from the CEO saying they were doing a great job. Now, of course, she wasn't saying they were doing a bad job. And so if you get a letter going to your mother saying you're doing a good job from your CEO, you're probably going to be happy with your CEO, so maybe it helped people stay there maybe, that's her theory at least, but it was a good technique to bond with the the, the employee's parents.
2: It was an idea she got from visiting her mom in India after she became CEO. Her mom asked her to be at the family house dressed up by 7 a.m. one morning, and when she did, all of these visitors showed up to congratulate her mom on raising a CEO. And no one complimented Indra at all, even though she was standing right there. And it made Indra realize she had never thanked the parents of her executives at PepsiCo for the gifts of their children. We next talked about Eric Schmidt, who used to be with Google and their people first culture that could get quirky.
3: Eric Schmidt was the CEO of the company, uh, but it's a company that had small offices and so forth, so he was away for a couple weeks and he came back and he saw somebody in his office. And he asked the person, what are you doing here? This is my office. He said, well, you weren't here. I asked my boss if I could move in and work here because it'd be quieter. And Eric said, well, what what did the guy, your boss say? And he said, yes, of course, no problem. So I'm here and I like it here. And so I'm going to keep working here. So Eric had to figure out, well, I'm the CEO of the company. Should I kick him out of my office and cause a big story? And ultimately he said, no, he just stayed there. The guy stayed in his office and they became friends.
1: Certainly, I agree with what President Yeltsin said, that there is no no animosity. The Cold War days are over.
2: And then there's and President George H.W. Bush, who inherited the Cold War.
3: And, you know, we were always trying to win the Cold War. Finally, the Cold War ended symbolically when the Berlin Wall was penetrated, and ultimately, the East German soldiers decided said they weren't going to go after people who went from the East Germany or East Berlin into West Berlin, West Germany. And so the wall fell down and people were saying to George Bush, it happened on your watch. Go over to Germany now and stand by the wall and say, we won the Cold War. It's over. And George Bush got mad at people telling this because he said, no, we don't want to rub it in the noses of the Soviets. It'll backfire. And we just want to low key it. And he was a very low key guy. He didn't like to take credit for things. His mother had always told him not to use the word I don't brag. And so he did the right thing, I think to some extent it came about because he was a very secure person and he didn't have the insecurities where he had to take credit for things. Sometimes when you're insecure, you might say, I did this, I did that, and maybe you did, maybe you didn't. And George Bush was somebody that maybe because his mother always drilled into him, don't be bragging. He didn't like to brag and he didn't like to really take credit for stuff, even though he deserved a lot of credit. And for example, you think about it, he wasn't reelected. But he had a very successful presidency. Other than that fact, we did the successful Kuwait war, the German reunification, the end of the Cold War, the Madrid conference that kind of helped make some peace progress in the Middle East. But he didn't really take credit for it. And he really was, maybe if he'd bragged more about it, uh, he would have been reelected.
4: Live from New York.
3: Live from New York, it's.
4: And live from New York. Live from From New
0: York, York it's
4: Saturday night.
2: We next talked about Lauren Michaels, who created Saturday Night Live in 1975 and is still the executive producer.
3: Well, think about it. Now, for about 40 plus years, he's been running Saturday Night Live. To do anything for 40 years and still be at the top of your profession is amazing. And he's dealing with the biggest egos in the entertainment world all the time. But he manages to do it and part, he says, by taking the best ideas that come along. He doesn't go around saying, I'm the producer. This is what we're going to do. I've been doing this for 40 years. I have to do it my way. He listens to all the people and, and kind of picks the best ideas he hears in any given week. But it's, it's amazing that he's been able to pull this off for some 40 years. Think about being at the peak of your profession for 40 years in any profession. And I, I went to watch a show because I knew I was going to interview him. He invited me to watch, and, and I, you know, he runs around in, in the set and doing all the things you would expect a producer to do, but never yelling at anybody, never saying this is how it's going to be this way. He would just kind of suggest something or listen to people, and and then kind of do it in a very genteel way. And I, my experience is that when you find people that yell and scream at other people, it's not a pleasant thing. Great leaders don't yell and scream at other people. They tend to try to persuade people on a more cajoling kind of way and i often found that you know when you see people who are prominent and they're in a w- restaurant and they're yelling at the waitress or they're complaining about the cab driver or, or whatever it is those aren't the kind of people who are usually going to be great leaders The great leaders are the people that recognize that some of the things they might find in a restaurant are not that important to worry about it's other things that are more important and how you treat other people is really a great sign of your ability as a human being to really achieve something useful. But of the interviews I've done, the ones that I thought probably had the greatest reaction from the people in the audience was Jeff Bezos. We filled up a hotel room, about 2,000 people. It was very electric. He's a very humorous person, got a lot of good sense of humor. And... It's an interesting phenomenon, both he and Bill Gates, the two wealthiest men in the world for such a long time, they um, they they are relatively approachable and have a reasonably good sense of humor. You know, if, if throughout most of history, if you were to say, I'm going to approach the richest person in the world, you probably wouldn't even get close to the person, the person wouldn't even have a sense of humor. But Jeff Bezos, despite being worth now maybe $180 billion, you know, he can laugh like anybody or maybe better than anybody.
2: Which is a bold statement, but David's not exaggerating. Here's a compilation of Basil's greatest laughs.
3: <laughs>, laughs. It's a laugh that when he was a young boy and he would go to the movies with, I guess it was his siblings, they would tell him, you got to sit somewhere else. We don't want to sit next to you because you're embarrassing us with this laugh. And he knows it, but he still has the laugh and he doesn't change it. So I guess, uh, you know, he just likes his laugh and he's not going to work on changing it.
0: And great job on that piece by Alex. And to learn much more from some of the top leaders in the world, go to amazon.com and pick up David's terrific book, How to Lead, Wisdom from the World's Greatest CEOs, Founders and Game Changers. And I keep thinking of Indra Nui, the former CEO of PepsiCo, And the first woman to ever lead that gigantic company. My brother spent his whole life there. He went way up the executive ranks. It's a $62 billion worldwide behemoth that she ran. But my goodness, it was the mother who was honored, not her. And I just keep thinking about that Denzel Washington speech at Dillard College where she... Always keeps him in line when he would come around the house. Mr. Superstar, why don't you just grab the broom and sweep the porch, Mr. Superstar? You need those roots to keep you humble in the end. Great stories, a great book, how to lead wisdom from the world's greatest CEOs, founders, and game changers. David Rubenstein, storytelling, here on Our American Stories. stories, and today we have a feature from one of our regular contributors, Stephen Resiniak. The piece is entitled, An Ironic Injustice. The story is centered around Stephen's son, Michael, and his friends. To read this story and its backstory, please visit stephenresiniak.com. That's stephenresiniak.com. Here's Stephen sharing his story. Hey, Dad,
5: have the police called yet? He asked as he walked through the door. Well, no, I answered, now wondering what my kid had done. Michael sat down. Slowly, he began to reveal bits and pieces of the events that had led to his just-asked question, events that would soon cause him two court appearances and to become the recipient of a small-town prosecutor's threats. He would eventually plead guilty as charged, but in the end, he would be called a hero for his actions on that late August afternoon. Michael and friends, Kevin and John, had a passion for hiking. With summer winding down and college commitments looming, there was time for one last trek into the woods. After leaving the car in an area just off the road, they entered the park's dense forest. The trail they chose was rugged, rock-covered and steep, accessible only on foot. Temperatures hovering in the mid-90s simply added to the challenge. About an hour into their excursion, they came upon a large pond and welcomed the opportunity to escape the sultry conditions. But just after entering the water, they heard cries for help. A swimmer, far from shore, was in trouble. Others around the pond helplessly watched, but did nothing, with no other options available except perhaps to watch the swimmer slowly submit to his imminent demise. Kevin and Michael acted. The effort required to reach the swimmer almost 50 yards from shore quickly sapped them of their strength. Sheer tenacity closed the distance, but once there, they couldn't rest. An absolute panic had overtaken the distressed swimmer, whose own adrenaline-driven survival instincts were now fully engaged. Desperately, he tried to extricate himself from the water by climbing atop his potential saviors. But recalling their Boy Scout life-saving training, they anticipated this and took the necessary steps to protect themselves. And then, all at once, the struggling stopped. With the last of his strength depleted, the swimmer simply surrendered. Captured now and cradled in the arms of his would-be hero, he gave in to his rescuer's efforts. The long journey back to shore commenced. As they slowly made their way through the water, the rescuers were stunned to learn that there had been a second swimmer, the brother of the first, and he was still missing. While Kevin kept the first victim afloat, Michael made repeated dives for the second, but his efforts were defeated by the deep and murky conditions, and now by fatigue. They had no choice but to continue towards shore. The pond had claimed its first victim. An overwhelming exhaustion had overtaken their bodies as they tried valiantly to swim. The two tired rescuers and their teenaged victim had arrived at that mystical threshold, that time and place that differentiates between those who live and those who do not. As the sinking sun watched from above, the cool dark waters below waited patiently for the inevitable deposit of three more tired souls. This time, however, Their tenacious determination would prevail and ultimately the pond was cheated of its intended victims. Someone had called 911, but it was well over an hour before authorities could reach the remote location. The two rescuers, now back on shore, waited with their fellow hiker, a decision they would soon come to regret. Because of their choices to hike, to swim, to save a life, and then to remain afterward. Unforeseen consequences followed. When the park police arrived, the three friends provided statements as to what happened, and then they helped to carry the victim back down what was now a rainy, dark, and perilous trail to the waiting ambulance. Afterward, the responding officers thanked the heroes for their help, commended them for their actions, and then informed them that summonses for illegal swimming would be forthcoming. Two weeks later, they did. My wife called this an ironic injustice. I, however, called it much worse. Subpoenas and court appearances followed. An officer set a sign a mile from the pond prohibited swimming. The heroes said they never saw it. Of course, they could have lied. But the time for that would have been before admitting that they had been swimming. A lie back then could have changed everything. But instead, they were truthful. Regardless, the theoretical scales of justice could have balanced the totality of circumstances surrounding this matter, while all pertinent information was being considered, thus providing guidance in deciding on an appropriate outcome. But in the end, none of this mattered anyway. The heroes were offered a deal, guilty pleas with fines and fees waived. John, who was away at school by then, had already accepted. Kevin, fearful of the monetary costs, should he lose, took the deal. The judge accepted Kevin's plea and then heaped praise upon him for his heroic actions and for his citizenship. Michael, however, declined the offer. Maintaining his innocence, he wanted to explain his side of the story, and to this end, he requested a trial. The prosecutor, clearly angered by this decision, informed Michael that if he pursued the matter, additional charges, such as trespassing, would be filed against him. The courtroom audience was stunned. One hero had been commended for his actions, while the other was threatened for wishing to exercise his constitutional rights. Fearing the ramifications, if he proceeded... Michael reluctantly surrendered to the prosecutor's bully tactics, accepted the plea deal, and pled guilty. It was over. Well, it was almost over. The media had picked up on the story, and overnight, it went national. In subsequent coverage, and as well in the court of public opinion, the heroes were hailed, and they were exonerated. Michael, however, remained uncomfortable in the spotlight, even after a popular late-night television program invited him to appear on their show as their special guest. He declined the invitation. One morning, after all the attention had finally faded, I asked Michael, if given the chance, would he ever again risk his own life to save another? His answer? An emphatic yes. To which he added, with just the slightest hint of a smile, even if it means going back to court. Of course, he would risk his own life to save another. I already knew that. I could have just hugged him while taking his car away from him at the same time.
0: And you've been listening to Stephen Raciniak and a great story about his son's heroism, and the peculiarities of a local prosecutor. Well, wanting to prosecute something ridiculous. And again, sometimes and often, most often, our our police and our prosecutors do great work, but sometimes they don't, and this is one of those cases. The story of an ironic injustice, the story of Stephen Rasiniak's son, Michael, and his friends, Kevin and John, Their story, all of them, here on Our American Stories. This is our American Stories, and up next, a story from Tyler Grenadal of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Tyler has one of the most interesting side gigs I've ever heard of. He's an Onion Ring reviewer, and he posts his reviews on his blog named Sola Capa, which in Latin means, Onion Alone. Here's
4: our own Monty Montgomery with more on this story. In a world dominated by subpar Onion Rings, one man rises against it all to find the cream of the crop. On a journey that started in an economic form in Atlanta, but continues nationwide on the streets of Grand Rapids, Michigan, the man seeking the best onion?
6: Well, that's Tyler Grenadol. I'm not trying to toot my own horn or anything, but I think at this point I must be one of the world's leading experts in onion rings, if only by the virtue that nobody else is and nobody else cares. It's not just a hobby, it's it's sort of a mission. Y- you could do it with any food, in theory, I guess, but I don't think it would work with all of them, like french fries or hamburgers. For whatever reason, I think onion rings have that potential for greatness that most people won't bother to do, but a good restaurant will. because. In a sense, most people don't care about onion rings. It's kind of a throwaway, usually an appetizer or a side. It's usually not the star of a place. So I think if you're putting effort into something that you could do cheaply, that you could do poorly, that says to me a lot about what the restaurant does in other ways. The first place is actually a saucy dog barbecue in Jonesville, Michigan, right outside of Hillsdale, and I got the onion rings. And I was kind of blown away by them because they didn't fit my paradigm of what an onion ring was, which before that was, I don't know, kind of a circle that tastes a bit like onion, but these had a big depth of flavor, they were handmade, they they were crafted with love and care and attention, and that sort of opened my mind to the possibility of onion rings, and I think then on I started eating more and more onion rings, and an observation of a correlation kind of developed into a philosophy, I noticed that restaurants that tended to have good onion rings had good other things. In other words, the onion rings were a proxy of the quality of food for the restaurant. And that eventually developed into the onion ring standard, wherein you can judge the quality of a restaurant solely based on the onion rings. Tyler now presents...
4: The Onion Ring Standard.
6: I rank a good onion ring by four categories. So the first category is presentation and appearance. How are they plated? What are they plated in? Do they fit in it? Do they spill out? Are there too few? That one's pretty subjective. But then appearance is the second part of that category. How do the onion rings themselves look? Are they patchy? Are they hand breaded? Are they clearly machine made because of the uniformity to it that you can't get with hand breading? Next one is probably an obvious one, taste. How do they taste? Usually it breaks down to three components, the breading and the batter, the onion itself, and then whatever dipping sauce they might have. Third category is texture, which I think is the most underappreciated aspect of any onion ring. How are the onions? Are they mushy? Are they f- too hard? Are they too soft? Do the onions slip out from beneath the batter? Something I call slippage, meaning that they're not meshed well together. Uh, the last one is probably a little unconventional when you're talking about food reviews, but it's one that's very near and dear to my heart as a, as a thrifty Dutchman. Those who know West Michigan will know how true that is. Value is what I paid for it worthwhile. And that's not the same thing as cheap. Something could be expensive and a good value. All these things are proxies for all those aspects of the restaurant, I think. But value is probably the biggest one. I think the best kind of onion ring depends. So in my experience... Onion rings that are good tend to be thick cut, so they're wide and they're tall. They tend to be in a liquid batter and then fried rather than breaded. Obviously handmade, I think that goes without saying. I've noticed more good ones at places like barbecue restaurants and bars rather than like fancy places. I think barbecue restaurants tend to be one of the weird concentrations of very high quality onion rings. But the best one, and I'll say this up front, Uchiko, Japanese restaurant in Austin, Texas serves tempura battered onion rings, which were unlike anything I have ever had and blew my mind. I think what you need to have is good flavor in the batter, a liquid batter, and thick cut onion rings, and then a perfect fry time to unleash the crispiness of the batter and just enough juice from the onions to not let them be mushy. We've heard about the good. Now let's hear about the bad and ugly. So I like to trot out this Bastiat quote for a lot of things because I think it always applies. Uh, Truth is one, error is multiple. There's not one true way to make a good onion ring, but I think there's fewer than there are to make a bad onion ring. At the core of it, overpriced, cannot stand. Frozen, invariably bad. The prep time, uh, if you burn it to a crisp, it's bad because that means that the breading is too hard on the outside and the onions are just juice. Like you're eating onion water, which is disgusting. I don't want to eat that. Texturally, uh, slippage, which I mentioned earlier, it's a term I think I coined for when you bite into an onion ring and the onion just slips out and slides out onto your plates, but the breading still holds. I think that kills an onion ring quicker than just about anything else.
4: Tyler now gives an in-depth look into a recent trip to Michigan's Mackinac Island that he had. Firstly, for him and his wife to celebrate their one year anniversary, but secondly to review onion rings and warning. This first review is scathing, but justifiably so. We've chosen to bleep the name of the restaurant in question to avoid further shame to them. After all, they probably were crying after reading Tyler's review, and it wasn't just because of all the bad onions they were chopping.
6: I went to a place, it's called Inn, that's uh, halfway around Mackinac Island. For those who've never been, it's an island in Lake Huron by the Straits of Mackinac, where there are no automobiles allowed. So a thing you do is bike around the island, and we were doing that, and uh, most of the stuff on the island is concentrated in the southern half. There's one restaurant on the north part of the island, which is Drive-In. I think there's a lot of economic reasons why this is the case, but when you have a not quite monopoly per se, but a dominance and no other competition nearby, I think your products can or might tend to be worse. And I think that's the case here. This is the first time I can recall in my entire time doing this, which is coming up on four years, I couldn't finish them. I literally could not eat any more of it. They were completely, absolutely tasteless. I mean, there was not even onion. There wasn't even salt. There wasn't even grease. I think I gave them a zero out of five in taste because there was nothing at all to it so it was kind of a meltdown in just the delivery of the onion rings as a concept so i I post all the reviews on my blog sola capa but i also post them on google maps it's sort of a service to the community kind of thing uh more exposure more people learning so i posted this review of which was not good i mean it's they weren't good onion rings i don't really pull my punches and they responded with the following sorry you didn't enjoy After reading your novel, I have come to the conclusion that you need psychiatric help. Enjoy your time on the island. Uh, That kind of steamed me a little bit, and I think that it it, sort of shows a lot about what kind of restaurant it is and why it is the way it is. If the response to the owner to a negative review is, you need psychiatric help... I think that says a lot about how you run your restaurant but in recent memory one of the best onion rings is a place called ice house barbecue also on Mackinac island but a similar process except a different story they were a beautiful golden brown really crispy pretty consistent size hand breaded you could tell like these weren't any frozen rings taste was unbelievable Uh, they put flavor and salt and seasoning into the panko breading the onions were cooked just right to release all the onion juices out into the ring, but without being too greasy, without being too overdone. And that's basically what the review was. And I think that the owner's response to this review, again on Google Maps, shows a lot about what kind of restaurant they run, how they operate. The response was five stars for this review. Your entertaining and educational recount of the Ice House Barbecue Onion Ring experience kept us on the edge of our seats till the very end. Thank you for sharing your unbiased expertise, as well as an exceptional talent for storytelling. I think that demonstrates a lot. So, they didn't have to respond. They didn't have to respond in that verbose and glowing way either. They could have just said, thanks for the review, or glad you enjoyed the experience. But they saw someone who put a lot of time and effort into analyzing the product they put out. So what's next for Tyler and his onion crusade? People always ask, is this like a, are you trying to find the best onion ring? Kind of, but to me, the beauty of Sola Kepa is that it is a never ending journey. Even if I did this full time for 20 years, doing nothing but eating or viewing onion rings, one, I would be morbidly obese and I would probably die before the 20 years were up. Two, I don't think I'd come anywhere close to getting everywhere, even in the United States. I mean, there are an unfathomable number of restaurants and of that number, a proportion of those have onion rings. So I think the beauty of this to me is that it's never ending. So what's next is kind of more of the same. Ideally it would be forever. I mean, as long as I can, I want to do this. So what's next is more of the same. Uh, keep eating onion rings, keep reviewing them. Hopefully people keep reading them. If not, I'll keep going.
0: And great job on that, Monty, and special thanks to Tyler Grenadol. And by the way, you can find him at sola, capa, C-E-P-A, dot blogspot, dot com. He is so right. Onion rings are the proxy the look into the window of the restaurant. And my grandfather, a great Italian cook, said, Calamar, fried calamari is the look into the window of an Italian joint. And by the way, for our money here in Oxford, Bure has the best onion rings by far. And I was just at Torrey Pines out at the golf course in San Diego, and I ordered the onion rings and they were fantastic. Tyler Grenadol's story, an important one. A man in search of the perfect onion ring, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your story. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. And we love redemption stories, folks. They're some of our favorites, too. And this next story comes to us from Houston, Texas, where we are heard on KTRH 740, a great member of the iHeart family. In 2006, Chrissy Moran fled the porn industry. Today, the married Chrissy outlaw helps other women do the same. And just to note this, parts of the subject matter here might not be appropriate for young, young children, but teenagers are over. It's worth them listening to this story too. Here's Chrissy to share her story.
7: My earliest memories were probably when I was four years old my mom and my dad there was a time when they went to church every sunday my dad was very 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 religious in every sense of the word when i was four years old he told me that if any man ever touched me to let him know and he would kill them as a four-year-old that was terrifying (laughs) so The first time that I was molested, I was four years old and I went across the street to swim in our neighbor's pool. They had kids and me and my brother went over there and their father was the one who molested me. And I was kind of scared because I'm like, I don't want to tell anybody. What if my dad kills somebody? So, I never told anybody until around 30 years old when I told somebody. And my mom and my dad, their relationship was really toxic. He had started drinking and became an alcoholic, was drinking all the time. He became violent. He would get angry at dumb things. He's flipped over our dinner table. He has put his fist through things. He was erratic and out of control. And it was scary. Um, My mom tried to shelter us from his anger, you know, when they would have fights. She would tell us to go in our room and close the door. And we never really talked about it. But around 12 years old or so, they ended up sitting us down and saying that they're gonna get a divorce so when I was 13 and I my mom had remarried and she married a police officer and he was very likable and I decided I would rather live with my mom where things seemed a little more stable so my dad got really upset and when he got upset he would cry he, he cries, so like, snot comes out of his nose. Like, I'm talking intense crying. And he did that quite a bit. But to let me go, it really broke his heart. And he did say, you know, if you move in with your mom, you're gonna become a whore like her. And my mom was not a whore. She's only been with my dad, um, but she just remarried. So I feel like he didn't realize it. But he spoke those words over me. And I mean, I didn't think that would ever happen. But I think there's power in words. Um, Yeah. So it was really hard for him. It was hard for my brother too. My brother was two years younger than me. But life with my mom and my stepdad wasn't perfect either. Like, I don't blame her. But... She spent a lot of time with my stepdad, and not very much time with me. I had a lot of resent for that, and I became very rebellious because I felt like nobody knew me. I had no encouragement. I had nothing positive in my life. And so, as a teenager, I did a lot of bad things, like shoplifting. So, yeah. That was horrible. <laughs> horrible, but we kept getting away with it and yeah. I um shoplifted my prom dress. <laughs> so terrible. My mom was like, "Where'd you get this dress?" I said, "Oh, Leanne." <laughs> let me borrow it. She didn't believe me. I don't even know how she knew. I mean, it was like she knew that I was shoplifting, but she didn't. And so as a teenager, you know, getting older and starting to like boys and everything, I had like my first real relationship when I was 16, I think. And my boyfriend was in college. And I realized that if I was with him, I felt loved. But when I was 17, I got pregnant. This boy said he would marry me and we would have the baby if I ever got pregnant. So it happened. And then he said he wouldn't marry me because he needs to finish college and he, he gave me no support. So I was taken to get an abortion that summer before my senior year of high school. And then it got all around the school and all the friends that I had wouldn't speak to me, and I turned to the person that everybody talks about and doesn't sit with. <laughs> so I didn't really graduate with very many friends. I ended up breaking up with that boyfriend, and then I went with, with another guy, and he and I moved in together. So it was really disappointing when he um, got Playboy TV or, or whatever on our TV he would watch this stuff when I wasn't home and then whenever I realized what it was then he wanted to watch it with me it, was, it wasn't like hardcore porn um but it was enough to make me feel like he didn't love me very much it just made me feel like felt made me feel ugly that I couldn't be like those girls they're better than me they deserve you know more um, attention to me because they're prettier than me. And, and I hated that feeling so much. I hated the women that were in the movies.
0: And you're listening to Chrissy and the story comes from Houston, Texas. And my goodness, to hear her say the words I think there's power in words. This was her referring, of course, to the horrible things, the horrible words her dad spoke over her. And they have power, folks. Let's pick up where we last left off.
7: I could also see why he would want to look at that, because it was way better than looking at me. Um, So I tried to, like, just be open-minded. We didn't last very long. We lived together for a few months, and then we broke up. And then I moved back home. And what happened is, first off, the internet just started. It was the beginning of the internet. And yep, it was a long time ago and I found these chat rooms and stuff. Um, so I could communicate with other people. So I would, you know, work all day. I would come back to my mom's house and get online and I started meeting men to date. And I met quite a few of them. I had no regard for my life at all because I, if I didn't feel loved, then nothing mattered. You know, it's, I would do anything for that. So I um, met up with a few different guys, I had been raped, I had been roofied, so anyway, you know, I noticed that some of the girls had like modeling portfolios that were online and so some of the girls in the chat room, so become friends with them and then I was led to that. and. I was looking at these girls' pictures, and they're models, and they're getting people to hire them to do shoots, so I was like, well, I just wanted to see if I could do it. I just wanted to see if somebody would think I was pretty enough to do it, so I found some, like, snapshots, put them online. People started contacting me to do work, but the work that they wanted me to do was porn, and so I hated porn. I didn't want to be in porn. It represented, you know, insecurity for me and fear and all of those things. And it was a photographer that had shot some famous women who ended up being in Playboy. And I felt like they looked so beautiful. Maybe if he thinks he can make me like look like that, then okay, I'll try it because he had confidence in me, so the first night we shot, when he started asking me to remove clothing, I just remember feeling like my heart was racing, and just feeling like, what am I doing, like in my head, what am I doing, what am I doing, and then I told myself, you know, like, I can't, like, I felt like it couldn't be there, so I learned to dissociate, which was something I learned as a child, and I didn't know it, so that you're not really there. It's really hard to explain, but I checked out, and the next day, he wanted to shoot me again, and he wanted to push my boundaries a little more. And I didn't want to, and I told him I didn't want to, but then during the shoot, you know, he guided it, and he got the photos that he wanted. And, you know, again, getting offers for work, I was depressed, I didn't feel loved, but these people kept asking me to do shoots, so I was like, well, there's something about me that somebody <laughs> likes. So eventually, I, you know, said yes again, I shot with a photographer, shot in a huge mansion, you know, the marble floors winding staircases it was beautiful and the shoot that I did you have a hair person you have a makeup person you have everything I felt beautiful I felt glamorous I felt like they loved me and as we would shoot and I would start removing articles of clothing I checked out and that's how I was throughout my whole time in the industry. And I had to check out because how could I deal with what I was doing? Morally, I didn't feel like it was right. You know, it's not how I grew up. I mean, I'm not going to be the, the moral police. I know that, you know, a lot of people get into it for a lot of different reasons. But this is my story. And I think a lot of people can identify with some of it. So I got really good at dissociating and I shot with those people, got more photos, put newer pictures up. I quit my day job um, because I was making good money. And I do wanna make it clear that I take responsibility for everything that I did, 100%. It was my choice, I did it. I take full responsibility for what I've done in my life. Um, I didn't have, I didn't really have anybody, you know, throughout my teen years tell me like what kind of man to look for. What do you want in a relationship? How to be healthy? How to love somebody? So, you know, I've learned that as I went along in my young adult life so anyway those photographers introduced me to my manager and now i started with a manager who would book me i would go from florida to la all the time do it i would do some shoots and then go back home and Mm -hmm. i was lit i ended up moving with this other guy (laughs) okay ended up moving in with I don't I, I can't even be serious about this anymore because it's so it's so ridiculous <laughs> oh my gosh okay so I guess I was addicted to love so I ended up moving in with another guy he started managing my porn career taking all the money pushing me to go even further into things that I wasn't comfortable with and I did it we dated for a year. Um, I thought I was going to break up with him at some point, but he ended up ending the relationship, and it devastated me. Because now I lived in Tampa, I didn't know anybody. He kicked me out out of the house, so you know I was really afraid to be by myself. So I just moved in the apartment complex across the street because <laughs> so I was scared, and I started online dating again because how else am I going to meet anybody I don't go anywhere I don't know any people so I did that and that's when I met my um abusive ex-boyfriend he did so many things pulling me by my hair saying he's going to put me six feet under like every day I never knew what I was going to get with him and I guess I felt like he was like my dad my dad had intense emotions, and I never felt like my dad, um, I felt when he cried that he was genuinely re- remorseful. So for some reason, I thought the, the same with this guy. So when we would have a fight, he didn't really mean to do it. You know, he still loves me. He's crying. So that relationship was three and a half years of the seven total years that I was in the sex industry. This Boyfriend and I, um, he did a lot of drugs, so I started doing drugs with him. Some horrible things happened sexual assault. Gosh, it's so crazy to hear myself say that because I didn't really call it that before, but it was. But anyway, I ended up getting out of that relationship one day. um, I ended up having a friend that was doing makeup for us uh move in with us and he told me after living with us for a little while that he told me he said chrissy you need to get out of this relationship like he's cheating on you and he's telling me all about it and i already kind of knew he was probably cheating with various people and i was like well i want to but i never have found anybody that will help me I can't just, like, I couldn't just leave because he was abusive. He would hide my phone. He would hide my stuff from me. If we had a fight, he would hide, hide my phone, and he wouldn't be back for days. So my friend, Bobby, his name's Bobby, he said, Chrissy, I'll help you. So we loaded up as much as we could into our car. I took a small, like, carry-on suitcase, but we just needed to get out of Las Vegas, which is where we were at that point. So we moved out, we went to LA, but I would tell my manager when I was available, I had a website that was successful. Um, So I didn't have to do things outside of that because of the success of the website. Not trying to brag about it, but that was the situation.
0: And you're listening to Chrissy Outlaw tell the story, her story, of how she ultimately escaped the clutches of the porn industry and how she got into it, which is a tragic tragic tale. She said, I didn't have anyone in my teen years to teach me about anything. And she went on to list about men, about boys, about love, about sex, all the things that parents do with their kids. And my goodness, moving in and out with a series and string of bad guys. Because, well, she was just looking for the love she never had when she was young. Now we return to Chrissy with more of her story.
7: So I was like deep into it now. I've been in for so long um my friend that that lived with me bobby he came home took a bunch of pills i think it was like xanax and some other stuff he saw me laying there and he tried to wake me up and he was having a really hard time waking me up so he turned on the, the water in the in the bathtub and he gave me a bath and like you know tried to get me to wake up and eventually i did And to be honest, I don't remember that part. But I ended up meeting this guy, my next boyfriend. So this guy wasn't abusive. He was really nice and he was really funny and he was really like a cool guy and I liked him. So after like the first week, he says, why don't you just stay? So I moved in (laughs) because that's what I do. (laughs) So I moved in. We were together for a year and a half, but we were together all the time, which made me feel super secure. And I, I felt like he loved me. Towards the end of our relationship, he told a neighbor when he was asked, why don't you get married? He told my next door neighbor, why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? And what I actually, I heard at the end of it and I kind of freaked out, I mean, Inside, I, I didn't really say anything about it, but I was like, did he really just say that? Because I was just walking up. Um, anyway, so one, at the end of our relationship, a year and a half, he has to go shoot for this movie. He was just a regular actor, stunt guy, photographer. You know, in LA, you have to wear many hats. <laughs> so as I was saying goodbye to him, I said, please don't go to any strip clubs he laughed and you know he left and one night he called me and I heard music and it was two o'clock in the morning and I said where are you and he said he was at a restaurant called P.F. Chang's and he was drunk (laughs) I was like you are not at P.F. Chang's I was super insecure my heart was broken because I knew I just knew that's where he had gone and even though I did porn I, I felt like I was always devoted to the men in my life because I didn't work with men, so anything else is just acting. And to me, that's where I, my where where I'm coming from when I say don't go to strip club, is that that I wasn't lusting after men. But if he does something like that, he's going to be lusting after a woman that's not me. And even though we weren't married, one of the th- that's one of the things that um my dad told me is that if a man looks at you with lust and he's already committed adultery with you in, in his heart and so I didn't want that to happen I wanted him to think I was the best he didn't need anything else because I was that girl why would he want to go see another girl like me when I'm already that girl? I I felt like I was his dream girl. I did everything. I was sweet, kind, loving, give anything for him. So, and I know it sounds it sounds dumb, but um, that's just where it was at the time. So when he said he wasn't at the strip club that night, my heart broke and I fell on the floor and I was just like when I when I was 11 years old this when I, I came to know Jesus and I um believed but through all these years that had gone by I didn't know where God was I was rebellious I was like why didn't you save me from this why didn't you save me from that like if you're real like I didn't feel him in my life and You know the the reason is I wasn't trying to have him in my life. I didn't. I really just didn't know Jesus as an adult. I knew him when I was a kid, but I didn't know how else you know him. You know how you experience him being in your life as an adult. It's different. So I didn't know where Jesus was. I didn't know. I thought he had left me. Like he didn't love me. He didn't care about me. And you know, that's, I saw that love in everything else and everybody else. So I fell to the ground in my kitchen and I was sitting there and I started praying. And I said, God, if you're real, I need you to show me because everything that I know about love is twisted and perverted, it's not right and not the way that, that I was told it should be. And I, I was confused. So the next day or so, I made a list: pros and cons, why I should stay with him. I I had to think with the facts and and not so much with my heart. So I realized I had more reasons to break up with him than to be with him. So I went to Albuquerque where he was filming and. The next day, we I went on set with that with my boyfriend. Um, he had introduced me to a few of the people, and it, it was pretty much all all men that day. So, somebody who was standing out there chatting got a picture, and it they started passing the cell phone around to each other. And everybody was, you know, reacting to it. And I said, what is it? And my boyfriend said, oh, it's so-and-so's wife and she's topless. And I got super triggered to, like, like, nothing else. Because marriage is supposed to be sacred. Like, you don't do that to your wife. And so I was like, well... You know, I would hope that if I was married to someone that they wouldn't do that to me. Even though I had done porn, I always imagine that the guy who I marry is going to respect me more than I've ever respected myself. Um, so anyway, I said that, and I'm not a brave person. I'm a very shy person, so I don't know where that courage came from. But everybody started laughing at me after I said that and you know the this guy that I had just met um and he, that was sitting next to me he says well if I was married I wouldn't show that to anyone it would just be only for me and so I looked at him and I'm like what like there are people like that in the world and so I was in shock anyway so I ended up talking to that guy again um at some point and he said um Chrissy what do you do for a job what do you what do you do and I'm like oh I am a model because I never told people that I did porn and he said well um what kind of model what do you model and I'm like um bathing suits (laughs) uh lingerie I do like car magazines like I started making up all kinds of stuff And so eventually I said, okay, I do adult stuff. He's like, adult stuff? Yeah, porn. He's like, yeah, he said, Chrissy, I already knew that because your boyfriend had been showing your pictures to everybody since, you know, he's been out here.
0: And you're listening to Chrissy Outlaw tell the story of her life and her redemption. And there's that key moment where her boyfriend calls from the strip club and she goes to the floor on her knees and she's crying and she says, God, if you're real, I need you to show me everything I think I knew about love is all twisted. And my goodness, was it a great story of redemption and utter honesty. And folks, we we bring it to you real sometimes and, and sometimes it's tough and this isn't necessarily something you gather the kids around for, but let me tell you, if the kids are of age, 15, 16 years old, they're ready to hear this Um, because this is what's out there, folks." And it's real and in the end this story, well it takes a turn, I think you'll all love. Let's pick up where we last left off. With Chrissy sharing what she actually did for a living with a man working on her boyfriend's
7: movie set. But then he said, let me ask you something, do you believe in God? And I said, yes, you know, he's like, you can start over, you can have a new life and a new relationship with Christ and we talked for a little bit and then he's like, do you want to go outside and pray and I said sure yeah I want to go outside and pray I was like I was on the verge of crying so he told my boyfriend we were going to go outside and pray and then my boyfriend was like giving me a look like what like he had no idea what was happening so we went outside and prayed we sat at this little table and you know I um, asked Jesus to come into my heart. I repented of the things that I had done. I had decided to turn away and I was never gonna go back. And because I had prayed for God to, to give me a sign. So when he asked me if I believed in God, I, it was undeniable, that was the sign. That's what I've been looking for. Jesus, Jesus hasn't, I haven't felt his presence in a long time. So anyway, um, that night I went to our hotel room, my boyfriend came in, I told him that I couldn't sleep with him anymore, I couldn't sleep in the bed, like I'm going to sleep on the couch, and he was, he was super confused, and um, the next day I went home, I packed up my stuff, I put it in storage, and then I flew to my new friend, Chris, um, that, that, you know, led me to the Lord. I flew out to be with his family um, without him. He was still working on the film. And so I meet these strangers, his mom, his dad, his sister. They were so kind to me and so loving. And they knew what I had done. And they took me to a pastor who was a spiritual warfare pastor. I guess that's what he specialized in. (laughs) And so met with him a few times I was there for like two weeks I think it was when I got on the airplane I sat next to a woman and she was a counselor to women who have been abused <laughs> and she was sharing so much with me I was sharing so much with her and yeah and then on the way back or I was sitting in the middle of these two guys and I looked to see what books they were reading they were reading Christian books <laughs> and the woman gave she sent me a um purpose-driven life. Um, and I was like, there was no denying that God was in this. Anyway, I got home, went, got back to LA. I found my own place to live by myself for the first time ever. But I went on, on my website, I had a chat room on my website where I could go in and talk about anything so I made a post saying why I left the porn industry and that they're never going to see me again and I was sorry that I took them away from the things that were so much more important like their families and their children and you know I never should have became that woman and anyway so the, my webmaster found out about it and removed it and kicked me out of my website and then he sent me a message and he said, If you would have wanted to go because you wanted to start a family or something like that, I would have taken your website down, but not for a fairy tale like God. It was horrible. They started advertising my website, making vulgar photos of me with Jesus and just horrible things. Horrible. Um, they refused to take the website down. It's still going to this day. But. You know, he asked me where I wanted the money to go. I said I do not want any of the money, and I was making like twelve thousand a month. So I gave up my income because I felt like God told me to do that. He told me not to accept any more money and to trust Him and to lean on Him, and that He was going to take care of me. And through that, He did take care of me money would come from like nowhere (laughs) it would just be suddenly oh this person is wants to donate you a car you know I had to give it I gave up everything my car my hair extensions my fake nails my fake tan I gained a few pounds I couldn't I only had one pair of jeans that even fit me and then even that I couldn't zip them up (laughs) So my identity was wrapped up in all of those things. And I had to learn who I was and what did I like. And what were my hopes and my dreams. And one, one thing I already knew is that I wanted to be a wife more than anything. I wanted to find somebody that loved me. Somebody I would be with Forever you know, and I had so many broken relationships. I didn't, I thought it was so far out of reach. I would go to church on Sundays. I would go to the young adults church, and then I would go to another church, and then I would go to, to Christian counseling, (laughs) and then I would listen to all the podcasts I could listen to. Like, I, I feel like I had so much catching up to do. Like, I needed to learn everything, and I was thirsty for it, and I wanted it, and every time one of these little things happened I I thought of it as as a miracle like and like like God is actually proving himself over and over and over again you can trust me I am your father you don't have to like not trust me like a you know my own dad I didn't really trust him I didn't know how he was going to be from day to day but um God proved to be a good father after about five years after I got out of the industry, I decided that I needed to take a break from dating because I met this beautiful girl who is my friend. She was, she was like a model and she was doing this fast from dating. And I'm like, that's so weird, but I'm going to do it too. So, (laughs) so she was reading this book and so she gave me the book and I was like, okay, I'm going to take a three months from dating. And so I met this other guy through a mutual friend on Facebook. And so I was hanging out with his friend a lot. And so on Facebook, he was posting a lot of pictures of me and him hanging out. And this guy from Houston would post underneath almost everything that this guy said, because this guy was really funny. But the Houston guy would always be one of the people to respond. And then it would be me. Or it would be me. And then it would be him. And it would, and so I had just met this guy, like talked on the phone with him for the first time when I decided to go on my fast. Like I cut off ties with everybody because the purpose of this fast was to focus on Jesus, to get into a deeper relationship with him and to not be distracted by men. But God told me it was okay that this guy from Houston, I can talk to him on the phone, but I can't Skype with him. So, so he was allowed. And so I told him, God told me that you could, you could be my friend through this, but there are rules. You can't tell me I'm pretty. You can't tell me, like I had a whole list of things. <laughs> it was so stupid. But those are the rules. Um, I assumed he was going to tell me those things, but he didn't. Um, and he kept he kept his word. We, we, I went through the three months. then God told me to do you another six months. And during this time this this man is has sent me a Bible and we're doing Bible studies over the phone every day. It went for a year. And then after the, after my fast ended, he had planned to come out to LA. And so that's when we met. We met for the first time. We had talked for so many hours and I wanted to hold his hand, but he, he pulled away from me, <laughs> kind of rejected me. And I was like, oh, you're hurting my feelings, but it's good. That means, cause I knew that I knew the guy that I was going to marry from my fast. God told me that person um, was not going to have sex with me before marriage. Anyway, you know, after that, he went home. We we continued our Bible studies. Um, And then I realized I got an email about doing a speaking engagement. And guess what? It was in Houston. And guess what else? It was on Valentine's Day. So I went out there. (laughs) We hung out. Um, He went to my speaking engagement, met me there. And then after that we went to his apartment he made me some lunch and then he asked me to be his Valentine and then we got married let's see February March April May three months later we got married and um, in two months I moved to Houston and now it's been we're going on we're going on eight years so that's my story
0: and you've been listening to Chrissy Outlaw. and I just love that laugh at the end because it shows you can get through anything and you can overcome it. And she did it with God's help and she just got close to him and relied on him and trusted him. And that happens for a lot of people in this great country and that's why we're not ever afraid to tell those stories. And some people who aren't of faith, they, they get it through their own code and their own way of doing it and overcome great obstacles too. And what was really telling here is the fact that her identity was wrapped up in all of the wrong things. As she said, I had to find out who I was. And my goodness, don't we all? I wanted to be a wife. And after fasting and not dating for a long time, that's how she ended up finding her husband. By not looking for him. Isn't life strange that way? And great job on this, as always, to Greg Hangler. The story of Chrissy Outlaw. A great story of redemption and of love and faith here on Our American Stories.